You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I have a very special guest today. He is a friend. He is a professor at my alma mater, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He's also the co-host of a podcast called Think Biblically, and he's written many, many books, including a book we're going to talk about today. His most recent book is called Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Please welcome my guest, Sean McDowell. Welcome, Sean. Beckett, thank, thank you for having me. Good to be on your show, and especially that you're an alumni makes it super cool. I know. It's really cool <laughs> to have you on. And so this book, I just read this book. It's really great. Uh, it, and it's basically, let's, it's, let's talk about sex, because it's about, <laughs> it's about sex, really. Yeah. And so what, I mean, what it seems like, what was your motivation for writing this book? Because mm. it seems like, and who is the audience? Because it, it, it seems like from the book that the audience is really for kind of young people, high school or college or, or uh, young adults. But is that, is that your intended audience for this book? But because I think it applies to everyone. I think anyone can benefit from this. So my big motivation was Scotty, Shauna, and Shane. Yeah, exactly. Who are... My three kids, two of them in high school. Yes. And so not seeing a single book that I thought, you know what, really has a biblical, a positive approach to biblical sexuality, avoids a lot of the pitfalls of purity culture, but is also just timely and deals with some of the thornier issues in culture like sex abuse and pornography and LGBTQ questions. I couldn't find one. I thought with the right tone that I could just give to my own kids. So that was a big piece of the motivation to write this. You totally nailed the audience. It's really high school and college age. I've had a few junior high students read it and they're like, I can track with this and understand it. And my dad read it. He goes, he goes, son, make sure you don't say this is just for students. He's like, I learned stuff reading this book, but that's the primary audience is Christian young people. Yeah. So, I mean, basically the alternate title with, of the book is a letter to my children, my teenage children. <laughs> <laughs> Should have thought of that a while ago. <laughs> when I read this, I was like, he's definitely writing this for his kids. Uh, I've met your kids and they're amazing. You have three yeah. amazing kids. Um, and so we talk, you know, it's funny because you talk about this in the book and I talk about this. It's weird. Like we're on the same page and I didn't even mm. know that you ever said this and you mm. probably didn't know I ever said this, but when I give talks on God's design for sex, I always say things like if everyone lived by the biblical sexual ethic, there would be no STDs, no blah, blah, blah. Wow. So tell, tell me what are the things that you talk about in the book that if we all live by God's design for sexuality, human sexuality, what um, what would we be avoiding in right now? Like, what would be you know what pitfalls would be would we avoid? So, one of the exercises I love doing with students is I'll go to the board and I'll say, "What would happen if everybody lived the sexual ethic of Jesus?" Now, of course, as you know and I do, we have to define what that means. 
that means there's one road to honor God, love people, which is singleness, or there's marriage. But marriage is one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. A covenant. So people yes. in, in the covenant for life. So if everybody lived that out, I'll say to students, would the world be the same? Would it be better? Or would it be worse? And it doesn't take them a lot of time to start thinking and saying, well, there'd be no sex abuse. There would be no abortion. There would be no crude sexual humor. There would be no sexually transmitted diseases. Right. There wouldn't be divorce. There wouldn't be uh, men leaving their wives for younger trophy wives. There's so many ways there wouldn't be the, the sex abuse that we see tied to the pornography industry. I mean, on objective standards, not just feelings and opinions, on objective standards, yeah. the world would be better. So I make that point because I think it's really important for people to see, especially Christians, that God's commands aren't to limit us and steal our fun. They're actually for human flourishing. But Christians don't really get that until I kind of make this connection and say, here's what it means for disease and family and emotional health. Then it's like they understand the point that the scripture says that God's commands are for our good. Yeah. And it, uh, you're right. It is. I, when I became a Christian 12 years ago, that's when I realized that God, God's design for sex and is, is within the covenant of, of marriage between one man and one woman. There's so much safety in that there's so much mm. um, security in that and mm. and it does lead to flourishing and anything and i always say this anything outside of that leads to pain destruction mm. to um, all kinds of problems stds like all kinds of things i mean when i when i was living as a gay man for 20 years i mean there it was like i had several friends die of aids you know i had mm. um I have, you know, friends now who are alive who have HIV and I, and so it's a very real problem. I mean, and, and I lived in that fear for 20 years. I lived in constant wow. fear that, you know, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what if this, what if I get HIV? Like it was a constant fear. And now that I'm uh, living, you know, as well, I'm not going to say celibate because Rosaria Butterfield corrected me on that. Now that I'm living a chaste <laughs> life. Um, I don't have to fear that anymore. I don't have to have mm. those fears of, of all that junk. And, and even just the, you know, I, because I, and I say this all the time, I thought I was sexually liberated for all those years, but I wow. was actually in bondage. And now I feel so much freer and I feel, yeah. And I, and I thought that, you know, kind of the hookups that went on in my life and the boy, the mul multiple boyfriends I went through, I thought, oh, like, it's no big deal. It's not, you know, it's not gonna, it's not scarring me in any way, or as long as I don't get STDs, I'm fine. But I didn't realize till I became a Christian that, that I had so many emotional scars from all mm. the, you know, all the mm. kind of one night stands I had. It was just, it's very, mm. it's very damaging psychologically mm. and emotionally. I really appreciate you sharing your story on that because this is a message I tried to get home to students because it flies in the face of our culture, like what sexual liberation is, doing what I want, whenever I want to, if it feels good, do it. But objectively, if there is a God who's designed us to live a certain way, then we're only free when we embrace that way and we 
live it. So an illustration I use is not perfect, but it connects with students is, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll ask youth. I'm like, have you ever gone playing paintball? And they'd be like, oh, of course I have. It's fun. Well, a friend of mine took his youth group to play paintball. And when they were driving home afterwards, this kid, if I remember correctly, he was probably in seventh grade. He kind of stands up and he tells the, the rest of the youth group like, hey, this was awesome. I love camo. I love the strategy. I love the weapons. This is so great. When I'm older, I want to be in war. Like, you know, a junior high kind of thing to say. (laughs) What happens, one of the chaperones had been in war. If I remember correctly, it was the first Iraq war. And he, he goes, son, let me tell you something. He goes, paintball's fun because in paintball, you're free to play the game. And there's no consequences. If you get shot, you rub it off. You have protectors for your eyes. You just play another game. He goes, war is not fun because if you get shot, you lose your arm. If you get shot, you lose your leg. If you get shot in the chest or the head, you might lose your life. He said, paintball's fun because you're free. And I explained to students, I said, a part of being free is the lack of fear of consequences that can be crippling. So God's design for sexuality like paintball, and I realize it's an imperfect illustration, provides a kind of freedom that when you get married, you don't have to be according to God's design for sexuality. You're free to not compare your spouse to someone else you've been with. You're free to not worry about unwanted pregnancies or sexually transmitted diseases or all of the other physical and emotional kinds of harm that so often comes with sexual promiscuity. So part what I'm trying to do in this book, and I think your story beautifully illustrates, is reframe for people how we understand freedom. It's not doing just whatever you want to do. It's actually the lack of fear because we're living the way that God designed us to live. There's a real freedom found in that. Yeah. Amen. And and as you know, we we uh live our lives are, you know, the culture we, in the culture, people live their lives and filter their kind of belief systems through their experience. And you talk about, I love how, if you could just tell this little story on page 21, you talk about um, a student who, I don't know if this was at a conference or what, but a student claimed that morality is subjective and you had a response to that. Do you, do you remember that? Oh gosh. Page 21. I feel like I'm going to have to pull. My you were moderating down, a debate uh, between <laughs> your Christian high school students oh, and some, yes. ag- some agnostic and atheist students. And, um, okay. and, so, and a student said yep. that morality is subjective. And, and then your response was what? Do you, do you remember this? Got it. Yeah. So let me, let, let me take a step back and kind of paint the story of this yeah. one. This was probably a dozen plus years ago. There was a high school uh, atheist club. Uh, at the public school, about a mile or two down the road from where I'm, I was teaching at a private school at the time. And some of my students came in, they're like, Dr. McDowell at this, actually, I wasn't doctor at that point, Mr. McDowell, uh, <laughs> this free thinking atheist club just met and like a hundred students showed up to hear about free thinking and atheism. And I was like, well, what do you guys want to do? And we came up with this idea that my students would challenge three of their students to a public debate on the God, the existence of God, morality, like the historical Jesus and I think question of intelligent design and evolution. And part of this was morality. 
And so they accepted and our church was packed. It was like standing room only. One of the coolest things I've ever done in student ministry, prep these students for weeks. And one of my students got up there and said, we know there's a right and wrong. We expect other people to follow moral code. The best explanation is there's a moral law and hence a moral law giver. So morality points towards God. One of their students stood up and said, there is no objective moral law. It's all opinion. You have your code and live accordingly. We have our code and live accordingly. And he sits down. So therefore, morality doesn't point towards God. But then it came the time for the closing speeches. In a closing speech, you're supposed to sum up why the points you made, why you won, and why the other side lost. And this student gets up there, realizing he has primarily a church audience. And keep in mind, this student just moments before had said, there's no objective moral law. It's all opinion. Or it's all Stands subjective, up there, right? It's a, all subjective. Saying, yeah. Exactly. Good <clears throat> clarification. All subjective. And he looks out at this audience and he goes, you know what? You guys are a bunch of bigots. You're hateful. You're intolerant. You're homophobic. Shame on you. And he sits down. Now, I couldn't point out to my students in the middle of debate the obvious contradiction this guy just did. He says, there's no objective moral code. It's all subjective. But you bigoted, hateful, immoral Christians have violated every objective moral code and should have known differently. I mean, it's just amazing. This is what C.S. Lewis says. If people say there is no right and wrong, moments later, you're going to see them contradicting that when they expect you to keep your promises, you to treat them fairly, because the Bible says in Romans 2, it's written on our hearts. We know there's right and wrong. We can't escape it. Yeah, I think it's important for Christians to get that and to understand that you know, when someone claims these kind of su- that everything's subjective and that we live in a postmodern world and, and all the stuff that they're, they're making truth claims, they're, they're contradicting themselves like constantly. <laughs> so it's, mm. I loved when you did that in the book. Um, and then you talk about, you, you talk about, you have a chapter on called understanding love. Mm. Can you just give us a good definition of what, what is love? What is love? Yeah. So sometimes I think our culture gets love right. And sometimes I think our culture gets love wrong. I think it gets it right at times because we're made in the image of God to love him and love other people. So there's a part of our hearts that resonates with a real act of love. So for example, you knew it was only a matter of time before I turned things Marvel at the end of Endgame, and I don't feel bad. People have had at least a couple of years to see this thing. Like, hello, what does Iron Man do? He lays down his life sacrificially to save others, which in many ways reminds me of what Jesus said. Greater love had no man than this, that a man laid down his life for a friend. So Thanos wasn't real love, said Gamora, because Thanos sacrificed other people's lives, but saved himself. Iron Man lays down his life in act of love. And our culture kind of celebrated that because we recognize that love is sacrificial. But on the flip side, there's other times where we say, no, 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 love is just affirming whatever somebody believes and however they identify themselves. And it's wrong for me to challenge your self-understanding. That's where love in our culture goes wrong because the reality is, People can think they're doing right, think Mm -hmm. they're doing what's loving, 
but not be doing so. I mean, the people who put Jesus to death clearly thought they were on the right side of history, but quite obviously they were on the wrong side of history. So love doesn't just involve affirming how somebody thinks, how they believe. It's actually to act in a way towards somebody's objective, good, and best, whether they see it or recognize it or not. So if I love my wife, if I love my kids, I'm going to act in a way towards their best emotionally, physically, and spiritually. That's what love is, whether they recognize it or affirm it. So I guess in some is love is to act in a way towards the best of others in a sacrificial fashion. Yeah, I love that. And it remind you just reminded you me. You love uh, that, pun intended. So I love sorry. it. I love love is love. Um <laughs> I'm like, love is not love. That's like you can't define love the, the, as a word by the same word. Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, but that reminds me of the verse in Leviticus. I can't remember who if it was either Robert Gagnon or um Michael Heiser who who pointed this out, but in Leviticus 19, verse 17, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Hmm. And, I, and what he was saying was that there, the, like we're saying, lo- loving someone is wanting the best for them. So when people say, you know, oh, you're a bigot or you're, that's hate speech, it's like, no, actually what I'm saying and what you're saying is love speech. We mm. care about you en- so enough and we love you enough or we love you so much that we don't want you to, you know, go down a, a road of perdition or a road of destruction. Mm. You know, we, we want the best for you. And because we have, we have experienced, and, and I mean, you experienced it long ago, but I, you know, just, just 12 years ago started to experience like, what real love is and so Mm. when people yeah like when people accuse me of you know hate speech i'm just like what i I, it's not it's the most loving thing i can do is to tell you that you're about to go off the edge of a cliff like this is this is the most loving thing you could do to somebody is tell them the Mm. truth and tell them you know tell them the truth and the gospel so um yeah so love, yeah, the, the, the whole kind of that mantra of our culture, love is love is, it just, it makes no sense to me. And you know, it, it also doesn't when Christians say God is love. Yeah. Like that doesn't answer anything because God is truth, because God is just, because God, God is, is righteous. Yeah, justice. God is, God that is, doesn't yeah, tell wrath. us what love is. Yeah. You know, <clears> I'll, I'll, if I could jump in here when I was, I was probably 12, my dad had a conversation with me. And he said, son, let's go to Ephesians chapter five. I want to give you a definition of love. And it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Of course, that raised the question. If husbands are love their wives as Christ loves the church, it also says, husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies. Mm -hmm. We naturally love our own bodies. The key is, can we extend that love to others? So the question is, if I want to know how to love my wife, I got to know how I love my body and extend that to her. And it says in Ephesians 5, it says, as he nurtures and cherishes it. Well, without going into the Greek, a a more natural translation 
is to protect and provide. So mm-hmm. I naturally protect my body and I naturally nourish my body, extend the same thing to my wife. So the simplest definition of love is to protect and provide. That's why back to what we said earlier is sexual behavior outside of God's design doesn't protect somebody else, doesn't provide for their flourishing. It doesn't provide for the flourishing of society. Thus, whether somebody admits it or recognizes it or not, it's still the loving thing to avoid sexual morality and to embrace God's design for sex. So for young people, I say, if it, my dad put it this way, he goes, son, if you tell a girl that you, you love her, ask yourself the question, am I acting in a way to protect and provide her for her? If not, your words are empty. And he told my three sisters, he said, if a guy tells you that he loves you, but he pressures you sexually, he doesn't love you because he's not acting in a way to protect and provide for you. Yeah, I love that. And it's, I, it's funny because I, the other day I heard, I don't know if you remember this song by Alanis Forsett, but it was, uh, you ought to know. Do you remember that song? It was kind of a, an, it was like her big, huge single in the nineties. You, you don't know it. You, so I remember, I remember Alanis Morissette, but I don't know that I remember You ought to know song. was like this really kind of angry and it turned into this like feminist anthem. It was basically okay. like her screaming at her boyfriend for breaking up with her. And I thought about that Alanis Morissette song. Hmm. I was thinking about that yesterday and I was thinking, again, if, if, we, if every human lived by God's design for sexuality and, and biblical sexual ethic, there would be no You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. Like she's furious, hmm. furious at her boyfriend for dumping her for another girl and because I obviously like in, the, she doesn't say this in the song. Oh no, she does say this in the sure. song she, that, that they had, you know, they were engaged in sex, you know, when they were dating mm-hmm. the Alanis Morissette and her boyfriend. Um, Cause there's a lyric that it's very, very bad. Uh, but, but anyway, it, it just, it, the, that song reminded me of, yeah, if we, if we lived by God's sexual ethic, there would, cause Alanis Morissette wouldn't be scarred by that relationship because she would be in a loving, committed relationship with that person for the rest of her life. And there would be no, you ought to know. Mm. That is such a powerful example, just using popular culture to illustrate that one, I think our hearts yearn for love. Like she wrote that song because of her brokenness, wishing things were different, wishing they were. So I'd use a song like that to encourage Christians. If you're going to speak up and say things that are truly loving, as you know, and I know you're going to get called bigot. You're going to get called hateful. You're going to get called homophobic. But in a sense, I do the same thing with my kids. I'm like, sorry, you have to do this and you have to be home with this curfew. Oh, I'm so upset. I don't like it. You're not fair (laughs) on all levels. That's what love does. And I've had to ask myself the tough question, gosh, did I just give in on that one? Cause I just didn't want to deal with the wrath. Like we're all tempted to do that. Yeah. But that song by Alanis Morissette just illustrates, man, when we don't speak love, this is the brokenness that so often comes out of it. So if we love people, 
let's speak it in the right way at the right time and try to free them from that hurt and brokenness. And I, I, I don't know if you've heard this story. I've, I've said it several times, but when I was in, when I was a little kid, I remember distinctly my dad, I have two sisters and my dad nailed their window shut. I saw him nail their window shut <laughs> because they were sneaking out to go see their boyfriends. <laughs> and it's like, what was my dad doing in that moment? Was he being a tyrant? Was he being just angry and mean? No, he was that was his love. That was a sign of love for them. He cared mm. about their well-being. He cared about, he didn't want them to, to be emotionally scarred or even get pregnant or whatever. That was a sign of like him nailing those nail, those windows shut was a sign of love to me. Like mm. I finally got that after I became a Christian. That's awesome. I love yeah. it. Such a good, good illustration. <laughs> it's a good tip for parents, by the way. <laughs> um, so, and then we, you get into um, you have a chapter on the purpose of sex mm. and just, br- I mean, if you can just tell us briefly, what is the purpose of sex? Uh, what is the purpose of sex? Yeah. So to make this connection for people, you and I talk about design. So there's a design for a smartphone, right? And it's when I understand the design, the way it's meant to be used that you could say it's set free. So freedom only makes sense with understanding design and purpose. So when we talk about purpose, we're talking about a God making us to live and operate a certain way. Well, I think scripturally, there's three purposes for sex. One is the obvious one in Genesis chapter one to make babies, right? Procreation made them male and female populate, fill the earth. There's a blessing and a command. Genesis 2, 24 says a man leaves his father and mother clings or bonds with his wife and the two shall become one Mm -hmm. sex also is meant to bond two people together in unity and this is a reason why sex before marriage can have such lasting damage is that people when you have sex with someone you give a piece of yourself away because our bodies are a part of who we are so by god saying you leave your father and mother bond with your wife, he's protecting us from some of those unhealthy physical and bodily connections that can take place. Mm -hmm. But one, make babies. Two, a kind of deep unity and bonding between husband and between wife. Third is one that I don't hear a lot of Protestants talking about. In fact, I got this from reading Catholic theologians who talk about theology of the body. And it's the idea that sex is meant to foreshadow heaven. It's a foretaste of heaven. Now, what do I mean by this? What I don't mean distinctly is certain religions that if you die in a certain (laughs) fashion, you get a certain number of virgins. Yeah. 70 virgins. Not my Mm. point at all. What I'm saying is what's interesting when you go back to the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves because of shame. Because of shame in our lives, it's natural to hide and cover ourselves. Well, in the act of sex between a husband and a wife, you uncover yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a way where you're meant to be known and loved and cared for to know and be known. In fact, that's what in the Bible, it's, the Bible talks about knowing like it, they use the, the, the euphemism yep. to know as uh, as for sex. So there is. Yeah. I, that's exactly right. So the, in the Old Testament, Yada 
because a man knew his wife, even as a kid, I'm like, of course he knew his wife. Like, I just remember thinking this <laughs> makes no sense. And then I realized, oh, it's, it's using a relational, intimate term to refer to sexuality. In our culture, we tend to use just physical terms. They used a relational term. It's a way of knowing and being known where there's no shame and you're uncovered. So it's not the only way of foreshadowing heaven, but it's, it tells us that the deepest pleasure within sex is not the physical pleasure. That's a part of it. It's the relational knowing of someone, the deeper connection where despite our weaknesses, beside our failures, we can be loved and held and cared for and love another in that fashion. That's what's going to happen in heaven, not the physical sexual act, so to speak, but God knows us. And despite our failures and weaknesses, we can know others, we can be known, we can love and we can be loved without hiding in shame. So sex is one pointer to this deep relational knowing of God and other people in heaven. And by the way, if I'm right about that, then we could see why Satan would be so intent upon corrupting our understanding of sex, because if he can corrupt our understanding of sex, he can corrupt our understanding of heaven. Speaking of Satan, so revisionists would say, <laughs> revisionists who, you know, on the issue of homosexuality, who, who say that, you know, the Bible doesn't, uh, gay, who are gay affirming, basically, um, would say, well, yeah, they, what about, you know, the man, so the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, what about, you know, the heterosexual couple who can't have babies? What if, or what if they're old or what if like, so how do you, how do you respond to that uh, kind of revisionist? Yes. So an opposite sex couple can be infertile because infertility is the lack of something that by design is present. So if it's the man or the woman, something woman, something physically not operating as it's supposed to, infertility is when something is lacking and when something is broken. That's very different than a homosexual act that even if their bodies are operating the way they're supposed to, are not fruitful by never, design. Yeah, can never they produce life. Can't be. It's a different kind of unity. It's a different kind of one flesh. So opposite sex couples who are together, if they can't have kids because they're infertile or maybe they're older, are still engaging in the one flesh union that is oriented towards procreation. It's the same kind of union, just doesn't have the same result. A same sex couple can't even enter into that kind of union it can't even be infertile because their bodies are completely oriented in a different fashion. Yeah. And I'm going to open a Pandora's box right now because, uh, and I was in Dr. Rob Price's class and we, you know, we did this class on, I forgot what the, uh, I forgot what, what it was on, but anyway, we, it was a Socratic method. So we kind mm. of sat in a circle and um, we read books and talked about them, but we were talking about, contraception Mm. and and i remember it's like i remember one person in the class saying you know protestants really have no good argument for contraception only like roman catholics 
are really they they really have the only argument for it. So what I mean, because what do you say about that in a Christian marriage and or in, in any marriage? What do you say about contraception? I know this is a big issue, but what do you yeah, say yeah. about contraception? Yeah, that's totally fine. It's interesting you ask because I'm just about to interview two people who've done books on a theology of the body and go into this on some depth. Oh, good. But here, here's here's what I would say. So as I understand it, within Catholic theology, and if someone corrects me, shoot me a link, fine, is that the purposes of sex in every act of sex is to be open to procreation. To have sex with your spouse and not be open to procreation is to thwart one of the purposes of sex based on the nature of the body. Protestants would say, yes, we have those different purposes for sex within marriage, but they don't have to all be operating every time a married couple is having sex together. For example, the book, The Song of Solomon, does not mention uh, procreation. It's about the pleasure of Mm -hmm. sex. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about a husband and wife owe one another, so to speak. They are to have sex within their marriage. So a Protestant view would say a marriage needs to be open to procreation, but that doesn't mean every single sexual act between a husband and a wife within itself needs to be open to procreation. And I, I think that's a fair response. I have huge respect for Catholics coming up with a theology of the body and pushing back on Protestant views that are often Gnostic, where the mind just trumps the body. Mm-hmm. But I think Protestants can adopt a lot of Catholic thinking logically without going all the way being against procreation. I'm sorry, being against contraception in every case for a married couple. Yeah. Well, I'm the, I'm the, the youngest of eight kids. So my parents were very good Catholics. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) They took it, they took it very seriously, that theology. Um, And I think my my mother, the only reason she stopped having, she actually wanted more kids, but the only reason she stopped is because her doctor said at that point, it was very dangerous for her Mm. because of some complications. And um, she, Either my dad had his, there was some surgical thing that's, that stopped them from procreating, but (laughs) I'm glad, you know, I'm kind of glad my parents had that Catholic theology. Otherwise I wouldn't be here probably, but, um, but let's talk about, oh, you talk about uh, some of the myths about sex. Just and I, I I can't remember how many myths there are, but talk about. I mean, you talk about kind of it's it, you know sex is no big deal. It's just a private act. Like, kind of talk about a little bit of that. Yeah. So for the middle section of the book, I talk about the purpose of sex, the purpose of singleness, and the purpose of marriage. And then I have three short chapters of the biggest myths that I could just find on sex, singleness, and marriage. On sexuality, two of the big ones are that we hear all the time is sex is just a private act. Keep the government out of what we do in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And part of me, I say, well, let's, let's think about this. Is like in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Or actually, when I landed, I was flying through Vegas and the guy said, he goes, remember, 
the the like announcer on the plane. He goes, remember what happens in Vegas shows up on YouTube the next day. <laughs> I, I remember that. <laughs> and I yeah. was like, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Well, what happens in the bedroom doesn't stay in the bedroom. Now, there is obviously a sense where sex is meant to be a private act. Of course, it's not to be done in public. Mm -hmm. But one example would be STDs, a huge amount of suffering to society and cost to society that others bear, by the way. In fact, I think I document in the book, I don't remember, it seems like maybe 2016, there were 70 or 80 deaths of infants from syphilis. Right. In you that year, that. Yeah. I got to double check the number, but I think it was close to that. Well, that is a clear example of what happened in the privacy of the bedroom affecting another life. I mean, mm-hmm. thousands of people every day get an STD, the suffering, the medical care, the expense. Second, anytime any one of us says or does anything in our life, not in a bedroom, we are testifying through our lives that what happens in the bedroom doesn't stay in the bedroom. It has public implications. Right. So when somebody says a private act, I say, you know what? Actually, sex sex is the most sacred act that brings a life into existence. And I'm a parent, trust me, those kids are not going to stay in the bedroom long. So I think that's just a myth. The other one when we say sex is no big deal is kind of it's interesting. We have this idea that sex is everything. It's in our songs, it's in our movies, it's in TikTok videos. Like sex is everything. But then on the flip side, it's like, oh, sex is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's like we live in this tension. Yeah. But if sex didn't mean anything, why do we need the Me Too movement? Exactly. What's the big deal? It's like we, you and I would just say to people, get over it. Sex abuse is not a big deal. And of course, we don't say that because we know it's a big deal. Right. Well, what is it about sex abuse? There's something about our sexuality that means something. But the example I used from a movie was I think the 2016 movie called Passengers with Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, where there was a sex scene in this film. And I guess they're going 90 years in the future and they both wake up at this moment accidentally. They fall in love and there's a sex scene between the two of them. I was watching this interview where Chris Pratt was being interviewed and they asked him, they're like, hey, how do you care for your co-star on a set where there's a sex scene? And Mr. Cool Chris Pratt, you could just see him like, I got to move past this quickly. And he goes, well, I got to make sure there's not too many people on set. And I just check in with my co-star so you should see if she's okay. And I remember thinking, you know, if sex is not a big deal, like we're told, then why did he ask him about that scene? Exactly. Why? What, because he knows there's something about that scene. Well, it turns out that Jennifer Lawrence got herself drunk for filming one scene in that movie. Guess what scene it was? It was a sex scene. Yeah. So we know, despite the sexual revolution that would say, you know, sex is no different than I heard one guy say it's no different than having a glass of water. And I always remember thinking, man, I don't know what water you're drinking, but I digress. Like we know it really means something that's just a myth and we need to stop saying that. Well, now, and, and as you probably know, in Hollywood and on movie sets now, they have actually like a sex <laughs> A sex expert who, mm. when there's a sex scene being shot, there's someone there to, you know, make sure everyone's okay. And so, yeah, it is a big deal. If you're hiring someone to come in to, you know, protect everyone and make sure it's, you know, it's a big deal. 
Mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. So, um, porn. Uh, so a friend of mine, so back in the nineties, my, a, a friend, a really close friend of mine, he is gay and, um, his, he had a funny kind of idea about porn that I thought was so bizarre, but he said, I remember him saying this one time to me that it's better for me to watch porn than to go out and risk, have risky sexual behavior with another person, another guy. And you talk about porn in the book. And so, I mean, you talk about kind of some of the the common myths about porn and and it, even when he said that to me in the nineties, when I wasn't a believer, I just thought that's, that's crazy. I mean, but tell us what are some of the myths about porn? Because a lot of people in the culture just think, oh, well, you know, it's not doing any harm to anyone. It's, it's fine. It's just, you know, it's just me and the, you know, whatever me and the VHS tape or the computer, whatever it is. Uh, but what are the, some of the myths of, about porn? You know, it's interesting why you said this before I get to the myths. I was thinking about how I would respond to your friend. And I would say, I'd probably say, should we think about ethical issues in terms of what's best or perceived best for us or what is best for others? What do you think? I'd like to hear somebody answer that question, because if we're just asking what's best for him and it's the lesser of two evils. (laughs) Like, okay, I get that. That's a false choice. That's not the only choices that he has. But I wonder if we reframe the issue and say, what's best for society? What's best for others? How do I best love my neighbor? Mm -hmm. Would we approach that question differently? And I think we would. And part of where I think he's going with this is the idea that pornography is just not a big deal. It doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt anyone. Yeah. It doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't have any big effects. Well, one of the things I've spoken on the issue of pornography probably, I don't know, probably a dozen years. But for this chapter, I, for the first time, was like, I'm going to do some research on how porn affects porn stars. I just became curious about this. And there's a lot who will say they're not affected by this, right? But there are a whole bunch of testimonies I found that were kind of harrowing of porn stars, how it affected them emotionally, Mm -hmm. how it affected them physically, how it affected their self-image. I even interviewed Joshua Broom, who's the 2012 male performer of the year. And he just told some stories about the harm within the porn industry in a way that really personalized it. And I thought, wow, if people really understood what was going on, you know, behind the scenes, so to speak, they might view this very differently. There's also very strong links can be made between porn abuse and sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a correlation. There's a strong connection in there that fuels it. Uh, What it does to the brain in terms of objectifying other people, the more somebody looks at porn and it makes sense, the more somebody becomes an object that they use for their own pleasure Mm-hmm. And it desensitizes people towards how they treat others. So we can only have somebody who says, it's better for me to do A rather than B. 
if we really don't think that porn is a big idea, but as we saw recently, even with Billie Eilish, who came out and she's like, this destroyed my brain. It destroyed my relationships. You know, thank God for her to have the courage to speak out and say that we need more people like Billie to do that. But I think that just, it's a massive myth to say, it's not a big deal. I'll quit when I'm older. And I think it's just a justification of looking at porn and saying, well, it's better that I'm at least not doing that. Right. Yeah. I just, yeah. I don't buy it. I've seen too much destruction in the students that I teach and the research I've done to let it go. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very uh, destructive. And um, just a couple more things. You, you talk about cohabitation and, you know, what, what is wrong with, you know, if, if, a, if a couple is dating, whether they're Christian or not, if they're dating and they're in love and they're, <clears throat> they plan on getting married, what's so wrong about them moving in together before they get married and, and cohabitating? So how we answer the morality of this is going to depend a little bit on whether somebody's a Christian or whether they're not a Christian. Yeah. So what I'm going to point to across both is just the effects of cohabitation. There's other ways to approach this. I think a lot of people cohabit because they come from broken families. They have parents who have been divorced and they're trying to say, how do I find a lasting, loving relationship that works? Now, some people just cohabit because it's easier and it's convenient and they kind of fall into it. I get that. Save on rent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's those reasons, but I think a lot of people are very intentional thinking this is going to help them out. But the reality is, and I did quite a bit of research on this chapter as well, is I was surprised at how much evidence there is that for people who cohabit before they get married, they're less likely to have a lasting, successful marriage. And you just look at cohabitors versus those who are married, and there's more like uh, physical abuse. There's more argumentation. There's more cheating on a cohabitor than there is on a spouse on and on the statistics go. And I think at its core, the big reason why is people cohabiting think they're getting a sample of what marriage is going to be like. Oh, I get to see you in the morning. We spend more time together. I get a sample, but they're missing the very thing that makes marriage work. It's called commitment. Mm -hmm. Commitment changes everything. So my wife and I are frustrated with each other. We haven't got enough sleep. We're stressed. And sometimes we say things or act in ways that we have to repent of and restore the relationship. Like I know my wife is never going to walk out the door and leave. And she knows I am unequivocally committed to her for life. That brings a kind of commitment, even when we fail each other, to restore the relationship and move on. That's lacking in a cohabitation relationship. So ironically, the very thing people think is going to help them gives them a false sense of what makes a relationship work. They get married. They're more at a disadvantage. So I could say one more, one more thing that I want to, I state this very carefully. There is nothing you can learn by cohabiting with somebody that has any relevance to having a successful future marriage that you can't learn some other way. I'm going to say it again. There is nothing that you can learn by cohabiting with somebody of any significance 
for having a lasting marriage that you can't learn another way. And there's negative correlations and arguably causation by moving in with somebody. If you want a lasting marriage, Christian or not, don't move in together. Well, and I, I don't know if you remember this, but I commented on, I think one of your posts about this, and I can't remember where I read this, but one of the reasons that, and this, this really rang true. Um, I read this somewhere that one of the reasons that cohabitation is very dangerous and bad is because um, we all have the image of God stamped on us. We're all made in mm. the image of God. And deep down, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you deep down know, especially if you're not a Christian, you know that living with someone uh, and not being committed in marriage is fundamentally wrong. And so hmm. what happens is it, it creates this illicit kind of exciting feeling inside of, of the mm. two partners because they deep down, they know they're doing something wrong. And so once they get married, those, that couple gets married, that illicitness goes away. And so then the partner, one or two, both of the partners start longing for that excitement again, because they were like, oh, I, mm. I miss that exciting kind of naughty feeling, you know, that I had when we were living together. And then they, you know, end up, there ends up being adultery. So um, do you remember when I commented on, I think I commented on your I, post about that. I, I do remember that. And I think that's such a good point. And let me just add another angle that I think would even make this idea we're talking about even stronger. It's dangerous to base it on a certain feeling like you're talking about, but that illicit wrongness doesn't just go away. So for example, I knew a lot of couples, friends of mine who would get engaged and then they'd start justifying certain things sexually before they're engaged because it's just a date. It's just a ring. We're getting married anyways. Right. Well, then you get married. What happens? There's a seed of distrust that was built in that now when the husband travels, maybe without even articulating it, the wife is wondering, huh, he was just easy to move in with me beforehand, even though that wasn't right. He was willing to be sexually active with me. I wonder what he's doing now. And that seed of mistrust. Now, if you bring it to the surface yeah. and you deal with it and you seek repentance, you can move beyond that and have healing. Yeah. But oftentimes it doesn't and can come back years later and really undermine a marriage. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's a really good point. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to end on this last question. You, you do a, I think it's, I don't know if it's a whole chapter or a section on homosexuality, but hmm. I get this question all the time. What if let's make it very specific, personal. If one of your kid, if your either of your sons or your daughter came to you and said, dad, I'm gay. What, how would you respond to that? What would you do? How would you react? I would instantly look at my son or daughter and I would say, thank you so much for telling me. I can't imagine how much it took for you to tell your dad who's been outspoken on these issues that you are gay and wrestling with this. Please know that I love you. And this doesn't change anything of my commitment to you. And then I'd wrap my arms around my son or daughter and I'd say, we're going to work this through together. Your daddy loves you. End of story. I love that. 
That's a great, <laughs> that's a great answer. And then you would pray for them, obviously. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'd pray together and there's other practical steps that would follow. But I, I think in that moment, the most important thing is not to say, well, first Corinthians chapter six or Leviticus 18. That's the wrong thing to say. Yes. Yeah. I just need to assure my son and daughter of my love for them. Yeah. That's the most important thing in that vulnerable moment. Cause a lot of parents don't realize if a kid is coming to dad and saying, I'm gay, this is the first time the parent hears it. This kid might've been wrestling with this for months or years. years. I talk about that in my years. book. I talk about how you do when you, you know, as a, when you're, when you come out to your parents, you've had years and years to, mm. to work through it and wrestle with it. And, and it's unfair to parents to expect them to be on the, you know, immediately on the same page when you've had years to, to go to, to process it. You oftentimes I find that kids expect their parents to just jump on board immediately be like, Oh, great. Like this is, everything's great, but everyone needs a timeout. <laughs> <laughs> parents need time to process it the, the child needs time to you know to give grace to their parents or give them time to process so yeah it's a it's a very but i always say like that moment is something it's a moment that you never ever forget it's a very crucial moment um when a when a child comes out to a parent because uh it's your the response of the parent is something you never forget and thankfully my, my parents were, were just so, so lovely about it. They were kind of like what you just said. They were just very, very loving to me and, uh, knew they couldn't really do. I mean, they didn't, you know, start banging me head, over the head with a Bible. They, they knew, <laughs> they knew they couldn't really do anything. So all they did was, well, they knew they could do something. They prayed mm. for 20 years and mm. God answered their prayers, but, um, but that's but those are wise words, and you always have wise words, Sean McDowell. And guys, again, the book is Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. I highly recommend it because uh, it really answers a ton of questions surrounding sex, and w we all know that <laughs> this is a huge topic today. So, Sean, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Beckett, you're a pro, man. I can see why your channel has taken off. And if you're watching this because somehow you found me, make sure you subscribe to Beckett's channel. Great, consistent, biblical content. So thanks for having me on. And where can people up. go to, to because uh, you have a YouTube channel, right? So people can- I do, yeah. Uh -huh. And what's it called? Uh, if you just search my name, Sean okay. McDowell, it'll pop up. Okay, so, yeah. And I'm, I'm all over social media, Instagram, yeah. Twitter. I even have a tiktok account believe it or not <laughs> well i actually have one just because i didn't want someone else taking my name so i just i gotcha. just have as like a placeholder but i've i haven't i've only posted one video on it but that's it that's awesome but cool well thank you sean i appreciate it thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the beckett cook show your support makes this content possible all episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Has fear stolen your peace? 
I'm Jennifer Slattery, lead host of the Faith Over Fear podcast, helping you fight your fears and grow your faith. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.